Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Amos chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron, but I will send a fire. We have here a new book for us to dive into, a minor prophet by the name of Amos. And so we're going to be in this series for quite some time. And I think that the key verse that goes along with this, we find just a few pages to the right in chapter 6, is we have a statement that is made to God's people directly. And I think that it applies to our time right now. And it applies to the whole series and the whole book of Amos. It's a, it would be what I considered a key verse in the book of Amos and something that we would need to pay attention to. And so if you look in chapter 6, we have, by way of introduction to the whole book, which we're only going to get through to this morning is introduction so that we understand the background of Amos. We, we really need to learn not just sermons, but we need to be able to become acquainted with the books. We need to be very well acquainted. When I was first saved, I sat in the preacher's office and I was blessed to have a preacher who was aged. I mean, the guy was well seasoned into his 80s. And I sat in his office often and he had books there that were, all of them were uh, at least 100 years old. And we sat there. And the, one of the very first things that he taught me was, is, is son, you're, you're like a carpenter. You're going to be, need to be very familiar with the tools. I need you to learn the tools. I want your hammer to have a worn area from where your hand is. Your tools should be so accustomed to your hands that you need to be very, very familiar intimately with your tools. And so the Bible is our tool, and he highly encouraged you and me to become very acquainted with the tools. Here in chapter 6, we have the key verse of Amos. And it would be the title of the entire series. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. He says, woe to them that are sha'anan in Zion. Sha'anan, the Hebrew is quiet or peaceful. Find themselves in a lull. Yet, with just a hint of haughtiness. 
Now, peaceful and quiet don't seem to be negative, but he means that you're lulled to a rest, so much so that you're carefree. Now, when you define that, that doesn't seem like it's normal because he delivers it with a woe. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. A woe is a threat of grief. He's delivering a prophetical threat. Woe to you who are God's people who are at ease in Zion. I think it's good for us to be reminded that God himself is a threat. God is dangerous to be around, dangerous to deal with. His holiness is a blasting, brilliant light, a burning fire. And so when you look at this, you think, okay, well, wait a minute. It doesn't, in other places of the Bible, uh, quietness and tranquility and peacefulness are, are fruits of the Spirit. So then why are we delivered a woe? Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for everything. There's a time for peace. There's a time for war. There's a time to sit. There's a time to stand. There's a time that is appropriate for everything. And in the days that we are looking at, in the days of Amos, and in our days, it is not a time for peace. It is not a time to float. It is not a time to coast. It is a time where he says, Woe to them that are at ease. And I may just quote one of the founders, Thomas Paine. He says, If there must be trouble... Let it be in my day that my child may have peace. When we open up into Amos chapter 1, he tells us some of the timeline that is taking place. He gives us actually a very significant detail of what is happening and as far as the chronology of the day. We find ourselves, it says in verse 1, in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he's referring to now a time when the kingdom is divided. We have a southern kingdom and a king and a northern kingdom and its separate king. We've had civil unrest and so there's a division. So what I'd like to do is so that we know that's very important so that we know what's happening in current events of the day when Uzziah is king of Judah and Jeroboam is king in the north. So let's Turn back there and, and look into Second Kings chapter 14 and find out a little bit about what these two gentlemen, these kings and their administrations. If you look over in Second Kings chapter 14, he gives us a small account of the history. Second Kings 14, and you jump down to verse 23. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 40 and 1 years. This is a very long administration, a long dynasty. And then look, he tells us straight out in verse 24 what this king and what his administration was noted for. In verse 24, he said, He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So obviously now we immediately find out that the Jeroboam who is king is Jeroboam the second. There was a previous Jeroboam the king who was the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He forced uh, idolatry on the nation. 
They worshiped the golden calf. He justified it by saying, well, Israel brings calves in because God loves calves. And so you bring these calves in to sacrifice at the temple. And so in his mind, deranged enough, he justified the fact of full-blown idolatry. But it's okay because God loves this. And in, in their minds, they justified it. They're so deranged that they begin to believe their own lies. Do you know anyone like that who, who bows before statues in the name of Christ? And they believe it. I don't believe they're being disingenuous. They're being legit. They believe in their heart that they're all right. But they're idolaters. You're bowing before a statue. You're praying to dead people. The Bible says that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. But look what happens here. It's an amazing portion of like four verses. We're told that he does that which is evil and sins. Look what happens in 25 with his administration. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath all the way unto the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of the Lord of the God of Israel, which he spake by the prophet. This is massive. This is a huge rebuilding project within the nation. I mean, the whole mainline coast has been restored and rebuilt and refurbished. This is a massive boost to the economy of the North government. Some have said that the, this is for the upper tribes. They're experiencing the very zenith of power. Well, that's interesting. And it says that it was done by the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath Hefer. That's the Jonah from Jonah and the whale. So for a long time ago, God had designed it and knew with foreknowledge that the nation would be wicked. Yet, despite their wickedness, they would prosper. Verse 26, look, it says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. In other words, what he was saying there, he was conveying that God in his foreknowledge and in the present tense knew that the nation of Israel, these, these areas were gangland. There, it was loaded with gangbangers, villains, marauders, robbers, constantly mercenaries taking advantage of them. And God saw and pitied them. It says, in fact, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper in Israel. So you couldn't shut out the bad guys. You couldn't leave. Nobody left because it was so dangerous to leave your house at night. And there was no helper for Israel. In other words, what they're saying is, is he's explaining the culture of men. The culture in this area there was no helper in Israel. It was too dangerous to go outside. And the only reason that that is, is because of the culture of manhood. There was no masculinity. The men were already groomed into being effeminate. They would wear, you know, they had man bun and skinny jeans and things like this. They, they, they couldn't defend. They, they were losing their culture of, of manhood. They, they, there was no heroes. There was no defender. 
That's what men are for. Look, we're, we're designed naturally by God to have wild hair in us so that if somebody comes to us, even at 13 or 8 years old, we punch them in the face. And then we get scolded for it at school. I don't care who started it. We're both uh, yeah, not going to go out on recess. Hogwash. He started it and he deserved it. I go out on recess and he stays in. That's the biblical way. You would have a lot less problems if guys ran his mouth a little bit and he just got punched in the mouth. I think it was Mike Tyson. He said, yeah, everybody got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> I don't like to see the boys in the summertime with sandals, shorts, and a beautiful tan. I want to see LVC boys with jeans and boots on. Buy your sons a pair of work boots. Actually, buy your daughters a pair of work boots. Because that's LVC lively women. Get, put them in boots. Your mother wears combat boots. Yeah, right, she does. Watch it. I think that the boys should have farmer tans. You should see me in the summertime. If I take my shirt off, which I don't normally do. But if I do, my farmer tan will scare you to death. <laughs> There's the problem. There was no one in Israel. There were no men in Israel that would defend their home. So you couldn't go out. People came in. And it got to the point that God, look, he says in 27, and the Lord said, not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, a wicked sinner, the son of Joash. He saved them despite their sin. It's a lot like our God, isn't it? Despite their sin, he saved them. And not only saved them, but they've prospered more than any other time in their history. Okay, that's what's happening in the upper kingdom. Let's see what's happening in the southern kingdom in the Chronicles. Look over in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. A more of a detailed account because Judah was closer to God's heart because they were doing things a little bit better. In 2 Chronicles 26 verse 1, it says, Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the room of his father Amaziah. Oh. Details mean stuff, and when we're going through a series in the book, you're going to have to try to remember previous sermons because they will link. We're finding things in the context. We're going to go through Amos. So you're going to, I, I recommend that you maybe even start a journal and write some of your questions down and some of the notes and the details. Because if you notice, the, look what happens the very first thing. I mean, the boy is 16 years old, and there's the coronation of the king. They crown him. Verse 2, he built Eloth, and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his father. So as soon as the previous king is dead, we talk about the first hundred days of the administration. This king, at 16 years old, his promise, his campaign promise, is within the first hundred days of my administration, I'm going to rebuild the city. All right, so obviously that was very important. 
Verse 3, 16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Again, a very long dynasty. His mother's name also was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. That's unusual. We don't normally in the Bible, women are the, uh, the culture of the day. Women were a lot of times a commodity. They, they weren't respected. So when you find that there's respect given to the woman, which God does have respect for the women, that's why he does this. He's, he's saying this in a way that is rebelling almost against the culture. He's giving them credit publicly in the word of God, and he recognizes a woman named Jechaliah, his mother. Moms have such an integral and influential place in raising children for the Lord or in society in general. So she's listed. And look what happens. Verse 4, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. Now, watch. Because 5, it says he sought God in the days of Zechariah. Does that mean that he didn't seek God in, after the days of Zechariah? Likely. Which again, the power of influence. The power of our speech and the power of what we do. No man liveth unto himself and no man dieth unto himself. We're not islands. Make noise. Say your peace. Tell people what you think. We're God's people. We're shaping society. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord God, made him to prosper. Now that's good, right? He's prospering. And is that good? Poverty changes people. Prosperity changes people. You can't deny it. Whether for good or bad, if you lose everything, you're, you change. Things change. If you win the lottery, things change. Poverty and prosperity change people. Not always for good. In fact, we do have a small verse in the Bible that says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, we have to fight that. Now, we have success because we have the Spirit of God living within us. And so Christians are the most generous people on the planet. But the people who are lost, who don't have the Spirit of God, do you realize the struggles that they go through concerning money? Things are a little shaky with this king. He's doing well. He's seeking the Lord as long as there's a particular people in his life. You know, his prophet and his mother and a couple of guys. And the Lord says, okay, while you're doing this, you're going to prosper. So verse 6, it says, And he went forth and warred against the Philistines and break down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And what did he do? He built cities. What was the first thing that he did that was so important? To build a city. Verse 7, And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Gabal and in the Mehanums. And the Amorites gave gifts to Uzziah. Really? Well, that's interesting. Because the Ammonites are no friend. They're sending, it says, gifts to him. Could they be bribes or payoffs? Maybe it's a, what we would call it, quid pro quo. Maybe he called the president of Ukraine. It was a perfect call. There was nothing wrong. It was a beautiful, perfect call. 
Some of you don't get that. That's okay. <laughs> Nothing more perfect than the Ukraine call. But look what it does. We're starting to see Uzziah a little bit, the king. Because the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt. Now he's got the money, and now he's got the power. For he strengthened himself exceedingly. And one person would say things that make you say, hmm. He strengthened himself exceedingly. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. In other words, he is a high-dollar developer. He's building cities all over, and he's redeveloping most of the town and the city of Jerusalem. He, he is, uh, his name is on all the property signs. In fact, in verse 10, he changes the very skyline of the area. Look, it says, and also he built towers in the desert and digged many wells. For he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husbandmen also, and vine dressers in the mountains, and in Carmel, and he loved husbandry. So he builds, not only does he change the skyline, he has this massive infrastructure plan. He totally revamps the Department of Agriculture. I mean, this is massive. And it gets even bigger. Because if you look in through verses 11 through 13, he revamps the Department of Defense. He gives a defense spending bill that is exceeding $700 billion. He has enough spending here and enough things taking place that makes the military-industrial complex drool. This is real. This isn't folklore. It's a lot of what's happening right now. Everything is prospering. Everything is going well. In fact, he has 300,000 in his army, but he's got 7,500 special forces, covert forces, to protect him, just in case we would need a regime change in a different country. And he's got a wealthy, he takes care of the military. Verse 14, Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the hosts, shields and spears and helmets and harbogens and bows, slings to cast stones. And then also verse 15, we come into Silicon Valley. Big tech. He made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men, high tech to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. He invented machine guns, night vision goggles. But look what happens. His name was spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Okay, now we can make our shot at Amos because that explains verse 1. That is how we do it. Let the Bible explain the Bible. doesn't do any good to have jokes, stories, and quotes. Not in a time like this. Let the Bible explain the Bible. Because now when we read in verse 1, we understand what's happening. Now, before we even get into that, just a few more minutes of housekeeping since this is the introduction of, of the book of Amos. If you look at the previous 30 years before verse 1, 
we have the very sensational ministry of Elijah and Elijah the prophet. Two prophets that were, I mean, full. I mean, they, they had amazing ministries. The Spirit was poured out upon them so much so that their ministry was fire and brimstone. I mean, literally, Elijah calls fire down from heaven. He commands the rain to stop for three whole years, and a massive drought takes place. I mean, it, it, it is a massive ministry, a sensational 30 years have taken place that God has used to steer his people. But it didn't work. For a wicked and perverse generation seek after a sign. I offend people by saying that. People all the time tell me, well, the Lord sent me a sign, or I got a word from the Lord, or some kind of, you know, a dream in the middle of the night, and all these things happen, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then when I say, okay, you, you know, you got, I got a sign from the Lord, and I say, and I say, good, because a wicked and perverse generation seeketh after a sign. Does, is that you? No. Oh, okay, well, let's reverse all that, and then Grace have a do-over. There's no fire, there's no flood in the book of Amos. But what we do have is a still small voice, and it's in writing. You notice there's no book of Elijah and there's no book of Elisha, but there's a book of Amos because Peter told us we have a more sure word of prophecy, one that is written down in stone. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. This is more important right now than fire from heaven. The words that we are about to encamp with and to dive into are more important than even seeing Jesus Christ in his glorified state on the mount. His word has been magnified above all of his name, his word, and we own a copy and have it today in our laps. And then he says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, out of all the scholars and all the engineers and executives, all the priests, scribes, and lawyers, he picks a country boy. He's a herdman. He's a farmhand. And you know what? He comes from the town of Tekoa. Where's that? Out in the middle of nowhere. It's near Bethlehem, which is in the middle of nowhere. But when you get to Bethlehem and you see the saloon sign and it says that, you know, and, the, you know, the, and all the, the Western things that are taking place, and then there's, you stop in at, the, uh, you know, at Lovey's uh, truck stop and you say, I'm looking for this little town of Tacoa. And he goes, you follow the dirt road down to the tree and make it right on the next dirt road that is a little rough and head down that way and you'll find it. But be careful because that place is only guarded by guns and God. And if you come there uninvited, you may meet them both. That's a country song for some of you who don't. But that's okay. I know, you know, that's okay. That's fine. Out of all the people, out of all the prominent people, he picks Amos, a poor farmhand boy. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. We have this great picture of their administrations now in our mind. We know what's currently happening. 
and it's happened and he wants to be specific. This is written two years before the earthquake. That's the bad one. That was the big one. Um, several prophets wrote about that particular earthquake and it was a big one. And he wants us to know the details. And then look what he says. Shocking. This is his message. He said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. It's a message of doom. But wait a minute. You can't be giving out fire and brimstone messages of doom now. We are in the zenith of our peak. We are in the absolute prosperity. Things are going absolutely marvelous. Who's going to believe a doom, fire, and brimstone end time message? No one. Things are going well. We're in prosperity, right? I mean, all of us here are doing very well. You realize there's not a person in this room that is poor that I know of? Do you know most of us here, I think, most of us here have a home that exceeds six figures worth? $100,000. Some of us, two fifty. dollars Some of us, I would even venture, and I don't know, but I would say some of you have a half a million dollar home. We can go out right after church, head over to Tim Lally Chevy and buy a brand new Chevy for fifty grand. Sign it and go. That's how wealthy we are. We are in prosperity. Then what is God doing? Giving him a message that is completely unbelievable? He, he wouldn't, God, you know this message. No one is going to believe me. Trouble is coming. And God in his grace is telling the people, his people, far in advance. And by his spirit, many are beginning to believe and to wake up. But if you think the masses, they have no idea what's going on. So the Lord gives early warning. And what he says is, he, he says, look, we know when this goes down, it's going to go down fast. It's coming. And when it comes... It will come fast. And God is giving us early warnings. Do you realize how many times you get something in an email or some kind of podcast or some kind of note or somebody talks about a legislation in Ohio trying to keep things from going in a crazy way? And we see it and we understand it. But the masses don't think anything of it. I just had a conversation with a kid at Best Buy, I bought a TV. He's got his mask on. I said, and he's breathing, you know. <laughs> and he's got glasses and it fogs up. And I said, I said, son, you, you, do, you, do you know? I mean, if you like wearing it, that's fine. You go ahead and wear it. That's fine. Liberty. I said, but your glasses are steaming up. This, the size of, a, of a, a water molecule is this big. The size of a coronavirus is the size of a pinprick. If your breath molecules, the moisture, slip through the mask at that size, do you think it's going to stop a pinprick? Asking for a friend. <laughs> he said, I never thought about it. I go, okay. 
Just, just thought you might want to know. See, to us, brothers, God has been gracious to us. And he has let us know the truth way, way in advance. That's why he says, To him that much is given, more shall be required. And that is why he says, Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Yes, you are in prosperity right now, but now's the time for you. If you want to do something for the Lord, now is the time. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion, even during the times of prosperity, because we know bad times are coming. And he has let us know the exact same way he did to Amos, far in advance. Now is the time. For who knows if you were born for such a time as this, Esther. But it's not lawful for me to go into the king right now, for I have not been invited. Push your way in. Make it happen. Because the chips are about to fall. And in the end... God himself said, I will send strong delusion that they will believe a lie and they will all be damned. By then, it's too late. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with pastor teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606 or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.